Judges and the military, what if? Can climate change send us to war? Stories from an army sniper. I think if you didn't think about it all the time, uh, it'd be a bit weird. And what happens when soldiers join the Royal Navy? One story dominates this week. It's not about defence, but it could be. The Supreme Court has ruled the Prime Minister's shutting down of Parliament was unlawful. Military deployment is the ultimate expression of political power. Each deployment only happens under the advice of the Attorney General. But this week, as the Supreme Court told us, the Attorney General got it wrong. Well, joining me to discuss sovereignty, the military and the law is Defence Analyst Professor Michael Clark and our own analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Clark, does this government understand its legal responsibilities when it comes to using the military? Uh, well, we don't know yet because this is a very recent government, only 60 days so far in office, um, and it's going for broke on Brexit issues. And I don't think it's given a lot of thought to the military uh, issue or indeed to the constitutional innovations which are taking place even as we speak. So <clears throat> there are at least a couple of ways in which the military could find itself in legally dubious on legally dubious ground as a result of what's been happening in Parliament in the last couple of weeks, really, not just the Supreme Court, but where we are now in the whole Brexit debate, I think. What, what examples can you give then? Well, there the are two things. One is that <clears throat> Boris Johnson is going for broke on Brexit by the end of October and an early general election. It's very clear that that's what the strategy always was. I don't know why the press seems so befuddled by it. That's the strategy. Now, um, he will break the law either one way or the other by the end of October. Either if he uh, leaves without a deal, he will break the law. Um, or uh, if he doesn't leave... Uh, then the law says that we will leave the default the default positions that we leave one way or another he's going to break the law by the end of October unless there is a deal which seems very uh, at the moment not very likely and the military will then find itself in the position of if there is the order for a, a new operation after the end of October is the prime minister actually legally the prime minister there'll be a new round to the constitutional crisis so that's one prob problem the other one actually more important as, as a result of tuesday is that supposing the military are committed to an operation say in the middle east in the next two or three months and the attorney general says yes this operation is legal that's what the attorney general has to say that's what took place in 2003 the, the chief of defense staff would not commit the forces unless he had an explicit written commitment from the attorney general that it was legal that was pretty controversial. But supposing the Attorney General then gives that commitment and now the Supreme Court retrospectively strikes it down, which is what happened on Tuesday, where does that leave the armed forces? Because normally they'd say, look, if the government and the Attorney General said it's legal, the government sends us, then we go. That's our job. But supposing the Supreme Court a week later says, no, no, that was unconstitutional. We decree otherwise. That's very, very difficult. Chris Lee. It's interesting if you look at two different examples. Let's take the Falkland Islands, 1982. Invasion of the Falkland Islands by, uh, Falkland I uh, by Argentinian uh, troops. It seemed pretty straightforward. You go and get it back. The Attorney General still had to be consulted on what, was the, what were the, uh, the problems here. And one of them was, in fact, the fact 
that the United Nations might not support you and who else might support you because the United Nations uh, saw then the Falkland Islands, islands as, as a state that needed independence. And so it was a tricky, it was much trickier than people thought. Then you get into 2003 as an example, Iraq. Uh, the importance of the Attorney General's uh, uh, submission can become a very big political story because uh, people didn't people thought it had been doctored didn't believe what it was said it was said now you take it into another stage and it could be for example 1972 bloody sunday uh, historic investigation and so the so before uh, the bloody sunday there was no uh, uh, attorney general to say to General Ford, who was commanding then, no, you can, cannot do it. Nobody consulted the the. Uh, nobody consulted, for example, the, the the Secretary of State for Defence, and so it is. The important bit is what is what is the complex uh, state, and that is the complex state is now being. I think changed entirely by the ruling of the Supreme Court to show that it is, it it is willing to consult the first question. Is it the Supreme Court's position to actually investigate something uh, that's, that's raised, or is it not? And that's where, for example, this whole thing about Brexit started. So, so Michael Clark, then, can you actually foresee a situation whereby troops might be deployed somewhere and there might be a challenge um, to the Supreme Court by an opposition MP and the Supreme Court might actually take it up and find it judicious to do so? Well, it's now conceivable that that might happen. I mean, I can't foresee the circumstances arising in the next six months where that might realistically happen when you think about the scenarios and so on. But, you know, we wouldn't have thought that we would be in this position in any case. I mean, what the Supreme Court did on Tuesday in, in terms of Brexit was a, was a footnote on the whole Brexit saga. It's just a relatively small issue. But constitutionally, it was a huge issue. Our constitution shifted by 90 degrees last Tuesday because of the Supreme Court's existed only for 10 years. It was set up almost in a fit of absent mindedness. The Tony Blair government really didn't think through what they were doing when they established the Supreme Court. And here we are. This is the first big test, really big test, where it's made a big difference. It's a very and so good. now we, we, we are in a position where um, if there were a controversial deployment of British troops, as controversial as 2003, I think a lot of people have been pushing to it for it to be uh, looked at by the Supreme Court. Yeah, you see, if you if you take something and the Attorney General says okay to the government, you're covered, and then 15 years later or 20 years later, somebody else raises it, then wh where does that leave the military? That's the question, isn't it? If it's judged unlawful by mm. a Supreme Court in the future, have the military broken the law? Can they be prosecuted? No, because the attorney's advice to the government, which and the government said to the uh, let's say to the commanders in chief, you must go, you can go because you are covered. We've we've taken this. I'll give you one example. Uh, many years ago, it was the introduction of something called the yellow card. You know, if you're going to sort of if somebody's doing something and you say, look, stop or I'll shoot is the simplest version of it. Uh, they had to produce a yellow card, which basically had you reading out your rights, etc. The chiefs of staff demanded that, that the attorney general give them a legal reading on whether this was sufficient evidence to be able to say, I gave the soldier or I gave the person enough warning that this is what I was, that I was about to do. And the attorney general couldn't do that because the attorney general found that one didn't know how a court would find 
And this, to some extent, is what's happening over Bloody Sunday now. I mean, it's a different era. It was, this, this happened just after Bloody Sunday. But that was the, that's, the, that's the difficulty that the, the military have. So the chiefs of staff have to turn around and say, I am not sure that we mm. are covered. Do you think this is the kind of thing, Michael Clark, they'll be talking about at staff colleges? Yes, uh, because this is this this although it's theoretical and and one can't foresee it happening in the near future, it it gets to the very heart, as you said in your introductions, what the military does. The military is the first most important function of government expressing its sovereignty uh, in a fairly potentially very violent way. And if the military don't feel completely covered, if they don't feel completely legitimate in what they do, then it's it's not only a legal issue; it's a big morale issue. How do they feel about going? on operations that are controversial and that might actually create legal problems years afterwards in ways they can't foresee. They're already in part of that territory because of things that have happened over Northern Ireland and Iraq and Afghanistan. This actually creates an even bigger question along the same lines. And when the commanders in chief turn around to the Secretary of State for Defence and say, for example, we are asked to join a, a coalition of forces and the Americans, for example, have covered themselves by not signing up to certain international agreements about uh, what happens, can they be prosecuted, etc. Then people say, what is the value of the Attorney General's uh, view because it only covers the United Kingdom. I think this is a subject we will revisit. Gentlemen, stay with us because the United Nations hosted its climate change summit in New York this week. It could be that a 16-year-old Swedish girl telling world leaders that they didn't take climate change seriously enough and President Trump turning his back on her caught the international media attention because nothing else was reported. Well, certainly the global security dangers of climate change were not touched upon. Let's talk to Paul Rogers, who is Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Good to have you here today, Paul. Uh, Paul, can climate change send us to war? It certainly can, and it could in the future. The background here is that almost all the models of the world climate system are basically finding that they have been underestimating what is actually happening. It's exceeding, in some cases, the worst cases. Um, it is asymmetric. Uh, the near Arctic and the tropics and subtropics are affected, being affected faster, and by and large, it's accelerating. So whatever the current state of play, it's going to get very much worse unless we decarbonize incredibly rapidly. In other words, very major decarbonization within the next 10 years. In terms of how that could lead to conflict, well, it puts weaker states under huge stress. If you have large parts of the tropics and subtropics, which because of changes in rainfall patterns, less rain over the lands, etc., means they can't produce the amount of food they did before, then you're likely to see people getting very desperate within their own countries and desiring to move on a much larger scale. We've already seen the impact of migration into Europe, into the United States, into Australia. Um, the determination with which it is prevented, the viciousness often of the attacks on migrants who are just trying to get a better life. Uh, you can imagine that if that is sort of multiplied maybe tenfold, um, you have all kinds of potential for political and social disruption. Well, that would lead to major interstate wars, another matter. I think we're dealing much more with weak and failing states tipping us over the edge but most important it does look like we're going to have a much greater problem of what you might call radical extreme movements stemming from 
what you might call the desperate margins. And that those radical extreme movements of people kind of actually create opportunities for militias, for terrorism to, to spring up in those areas. I would certainly expect that because what makes this more difficult in many ways is the fact that you have a kind of marginalisation of people more for economic reasons. It's when you put the two together, the combination of economic marginalisation and environmental limitations, that you really get the potential for really very major problems. Michael Clark, do you get a sense that, uh, that the big thinkers at the MOD take climate change seriously in terms of the potential for causing instability in the world and causing wars? They do at Staff College at the, and the, the Defence uh, DCDC, the Defence Concepts and Doctrine Centre, the uh, Global Strategic Trends, which is now in its sixth edition, spends quite a lot of time on this. And they do look at the best science in secondary sources around and they, they look at the sort of things exactly that Paul has been talking about. But seeing the problem and doing something about it in policy terms are two different things. So, I mean, I think the British system is very good at seeing these global style problems, these big global issues that we that the world does need to tackle. But then there's a lack of a transmission mechanism between that and our defense policy, foreign policy, our policy with our allies and so on. And we, we sort of fall back on the, the rather weak uh, commitments that we make at the Paris Climate Accord, which after all is not a treaty, it's just an accord. You know, we've backed away from the Kyoto um, Agreement a long, long way. And the only thing that's good to say about this is that the whole environmentalist movement is really a bottom-up rather than a top-down movement. That's what we're seeing with Greta Thunberg and people like that. It's, it's pushing governments to take it more seriously. And there is something to be said for the fact that the, the extreme weather events that we've had everywhere in the world these last three or four years are now beginning to make people wake up. Mm. And this bottom-up movement has now got some, some momentum to it. But governments themselves are going to have to be pushed kicking and screaming to really take this as seriously as they deserve to do. There's another side of this with the British military uh, or the, and the defence, that's the military itself, and also uh, the defence ministry. The defence ministry and the practical military have to think in two terms the strategic picture and the tactical and theatre picture. And therefore, they are literally planning what they might be asked to do with the systems that they have. When you examine, as they do, the larger picture of what climate change can bring about, then you look at what you've got and you start to have to, you have to, start to think, what if I were asked to do something in that area now which has completely changed? or that area which I have, uh, let's say, political connections with, that we haven't had before, historical connections with, have I got the right way to deploy uh, the British Army or the Air Force or the Navy? Uh, because that starts to move towards something which is gradually having to happen to the British forces, and that perhaps they start having to rethink of what you use or what you might use British forces in future and that is largely because of the changing shape and temperature of the world. Of course uh, Paul Rogers the, the obvious recent example is uh, because of the thawing ice caps what's happening in the Arctic the tensions there. Yes very much so and you see the competition there there's a wider way of looking at this if the function of the military essentially is the defense of the realm and if probably the biggest or one of the biggest threats to the realm in 10 or 15 years time is going to stem from climate disruption, global heating, call it what you will, then you could argue that the responsibility of the military is also 
to tell the government, if you like, to speak truth of power to power, that they are involved in conflict prevention and therefore the government has got to recognise that you have to have a major political response now. I agree very much with what Michael was saying about the way in which you've had this very strong public movement, which is not going to go away, but you've got to have political leadership. So you think the military should be going to the government and say, take climate change seriously now? I think they should. I think they should make that a priority because that might have a much bigger effect in some ways um, than many environmentalists. If the military saying, look, if you want an extremely dangerous world, you're going the way to get it and don't expect us to be able to control it because we won't. Is that going to happen, Michael Clark? Uh, not at the moment, I think, but uh, I, I think Paul's right. I mean, it's, this is, goes back to something that Copenhagen School used to yes. talk about, yeah. um, that if, if something is a, is a force, whatever it is, that stops people leading a normal life and is so serious as to be worth the mobilization of resources, extraordinary resources, then it's a security problem. So for some countries, that's crime. If you live in Colombia, that's that's crime. If you live in a, in a low-lying state, it's environment. Increasingly, if you live in Western Europe, it's environment. It, because the environmental impacts on our normal life are such that we regard it as increasingly intolerable and we ought to do something about it. And therefore, we securitize it. It becomes a security problem. If we saw it in that way, then not just the military, but our whole security establishment should be saying to the government, OK, you worry about the Russians, fine. You worry about the Chinese. You worry about instability in Africa. Put this worry a bit higher up the, a lot higher up the hierarchy, because actually it has the power to create instability that we simply won't be able to deal with. But in itself, Paul Rogers, uh, imagining you have the government completely motivated by this, um, how different countries from the developed world copes with climate change, the policies they take, they will in itself bring in international tensions, presumably. They could well do, because some countries will try and take economic advantage from not having to do things that are actually essential. So in other words, they will act in their short-term interest, not the long-term interest of themselves and the rest of the world. And that's one of the very big dangers. And here you come back to, well, dare I say it, Mr Trump, Mr Putin and a few others. Mm. Let's just talk about uh, an appearance at the UN General Assembly, because this is where the climate change issue was, was talked about. Um, President Rouhani of Iran... Um, who wants to kick off on uh, on his address? One of the interesting things here is I look at a report from Al Jazeera of the speech, and they also had one of their correspondents from Tehran reporting into the programme. And he said that the odd thing is there's quite a lot more almost satisfaction and optimism in and around Tehran compared with even a year ago. And I think they feel that Trump is somewhat in a, in a corner on this because the Iranians actually can make a lot of trouble for the Saudis in a way that the Americans can't easily counter. And I gather that the Iranians are rather happy, paradoxically, that the Americans are putting more support troops into Saudi Arabia to help with the air defences. Because, of course, if you have uniformed American troops in Saudi Arabia, that'll be the first time in about 15 years. And the radical Islamists can basically call these the crusade of forces protecting the kingdom of the holy places. Now, that seems to be quite small beer, but in fact, symbolically, it can be quite important. So I was really struck. Rouhani played a fairly tough game, but there's a, more confidence in the Iranian side than I would have expected. I think that is intriguing. There's another side of this, and that is that uh, President Trump is actually having to do exactly what President Obama had to do about Iran. And that is you can get so close and then you realise you actually can't do it. And so you may tell the banks to do it on restrictions, uh, but you can't do it militarily. There isn't yeah. a military solution. Mm. And I think that and that's what we had that confidence, I thought, in the speech uh, at, at the UN. 
And again, sort of saying to the local people, uh, some of the regional sort of people, let's all get together. Well, you're you're giving a base for the Europeans, perhaps to say yes, we'll join in on that or whatever. Um, but it's actually saying to um, Mr. Trump, well, we saw it before, and you really can't do it, can you? So, M- Michael Clark, I mean, he talked about a coalition of hope about regional powers uh, dealing with their own situation, about the mm. burning of the Middle East. He was basically telling the US to hands off, get out of it. Mm. But at the same time, he seems to be leaving the door open open for the Iran nuclear deal to, to be revived? Yes, I mean, they're very much... The, the Iranians want to get back on some sort of track, mainly because they want sanctions to be lifted. And although they are tactically in a very good position at the moment, they control the agenda for what happens in that region for the next 18 months or two years because the United States cannot act for all sorts of reasons that we understand. Although that is the case, their economy really is suffering and they do need to get sanctions lifted. And that's really very important. So they want to get that back on track. But equally, they see the attractions of this tactical advantage that they've got. And what the Iranians are saying is, in in a way, is confirming what the Americans privately are are demonstrating, that they, they keep getting drawn into a region that they really want to turn their backs on. Obama had that very same view. He thought, we don't need the Middle East anymore. We don't need the energy from the Middle East. Um, we, we shouldn't be hostage to what goes on there. But he couldn't get away from it. And Trump is exactly the same. And the Iranians, I think, feel that if they can handle these next few months properly, they can even gain a strategic advantage. I suspect that they're wrong about that because I think they're in a bit of a cul-de-sac. Mm. But for the time being, their, their morale is quite high. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you for your time, Professor Michael Clark, Professor Paul Rogers. Thank you. Sit rep with Kate what it's like to be a sniper and from soldier to sailor, how the Royal Navy has been recruiting from the army. So what is it like to be a British Army sniper? John was 15 years, has 15 years worth of experience and is a sniper instructor at the Specialist Weapons School at Warminster Camp. He's been talking to our reporter Amy Wiltshire, first of all describing the first time he killed someone in Iraq. You're trained to take the perfect shot is there a lot of pressure on that, would you say? Yeah, massively. And it doesn't matter what distance, you know, you, you think of snipers that are doing massive distance, you know, 1,000 metres, 1,200 metres or whatever, or 900 metres to what we're trained to. Um, but it's even them short-range shots, especially in Afgan- Af- Afghanistan, um, where there's a lot of close country. And it's... You might not think it is sniping, but you know some of them shots are only 200 meters, 250 meters, 300 meters, and you know it's just I can't miss this. You know I need to get this. You know because the 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 people that we um, tend to target are the are the high value targets. What was it like being sent on your first operation? Daunting at times and uh, a bit apprehensive. Looking forward to it. You know there's a lot of responsibility. Um, as, as snipers, um, of what we've got to, you know, provide um, support for the, you know, all the troops and that. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was exciting as well. Yeah, you know, you, you've done all this training, uh, and quite intensive training as well, and then you're finally gonna do some sort of aspect of that. You know, not necessarily pulling the trigger all the time. Uh, a lot of surveillance work. Can you remember? taking your first shot, what was the target and how did it make you feel? Yeah, it was in Iraq. Um, we was doing strike ops. Um, we was on a roof. Um, so we'd support the, the strike teams going in. And it was just the job. It was 
um, you know, they're just targets at the end of the day. Um, and to be honest, if you say it didn't bother you, then you, you know, you'd be lying. It did a little bit, but you know, it was, um, it was just something you've, you've, you've got to do. Coming back from operation where your job was to kill, did you have flashbacks? Did you have any regret? Or were you there just to do the job? That's, was that how you were feeling? There's not a day that goes by when you don't think about um, some, you know, some element of, of, of tour, whether it would be Afghan, Iraq, Kosovo, Bosnia, Northern Ireland, where I've been. Um, you know, I think if you didn't think about it all the time, um, it'd be a bit weird. So yeah, every day I, I think about different things. Have you ever been scared? And if so, are you happy to talk about it? Yeah, yeah, quite a few times. Um, I think everybody does. Um, um, yeah, you know, you, you're going out on the job, you, you know, nothing's happening, but, you, you know, your adrenaline's up. Um, you're quite apprehensive, you know, you're well-trained anyway, and, you know, you've got your, your support of all your guys around you and stuff. And then when it, when it kicks off, yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. If you could go back now, would you change anything about your sniper career? I wouldn't change anything. Um, all the guys I've ever worked with. Hmm. Yeah, some of them. <laughs> yeah. Why are you emotional, would you say? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, none of my snipers got um, killed. Uh, killed or anything, you know, I've had a few injured and, and that, it's, you know, um, and then most of them are out now, so, yeah. Your job requires a lot of patience. What has been your remedy to remaining so patient? I'm just quite a passive bloke anyway. I enjoy my own company. Um, I enjoy company of, uh, you know, um, working in pairs, groups, teams and that it's um yeah i think you've just got to be that calm collective kind of guy and finally if anyone's thinking of uh becoming a sniper what would you say to them just be just be keen just be motivated just be helpful um and just be an all-round good bloke um right you won't get selected for sniping yeah and be good at shooting <laughs> is one of the key that things helps. <laughs> it, it helps it helps if you can hit stuff yeah <laughs> That was John talking about his work as a sniper. It's not often you hear someone talking about sniping, is it, Christopher? No, he doesn't. And the other thing is that, um, you know, every every soldier who goes into an operation, goes into a battle, and goes into a contact, is close up, maybe, a sniper. And there shouldn't be the idea that it's something like even underhand or it's you shouldn't be doing this sort of work. Um, I think I've never never seen any figures which shows in Afghanistan how many kills there were from the sniper groups um, and what was the reaction from the groups that ha took a casualty um, because there's some remarkable stuff which shows how it does disrupt. It moves people. It it moves a group on. So, And then when you get the in biggest... what sense do you mean, moves them on? Well, right, you, you, you get somebody who's operating as perhaps as a sniper himself, uh, sort of an Afghan or, or IS or... or Al-Qaeda in, in, in days by. Um, and he's taken out by a British sniper or an American sniper or whatever. And then that group that he's attached to 
moves on. Mm. Don't stay in the area. But it, it does change this, and one shot can change the disposition and the deployment uh, quite remarkably. But I'd like to see those figures of, mm. of, of the Afghan uh I'm not sure operation. you're going to get them, Christopher. <laughs> you might do. You, well, okay. yeah, why not? You get killed in action of all the other uh, people. Now, it's been no secret that the Royal Navy has been tackling its skills shortage by enticing soldiers from the army to retrain as sailors. We had a reporter visiting HMS Lancaster at Devonport recently, and she found two. Petty Officer Ben Fawcett first is the satellite maintainer on board. The Navy never needing to retain engineers so much as now. We're really being looked after. It's a good place to be. And there's a lot of the boys that are on here, credit to the boys on here, they've really, rather than trying to see us off all the time, have looked after us. And Petty Officer Ryan Bamley is a sonar maintainer. Naval terminology and the jack speak was definitely mm. hard to get used to. So there is a book, the jack speak book, before we came across, sort of read all that. Scoth, cookhouse, gonkins one we use for sleeping, nobody uses that. And jack's a, a different term here. Yeah? So jack in the army is like, being selfish, but being Jack in the Navy's being throbbing and loving your job. <laughs> Christopher, I bet you'd like to get the figures for the Army converts to the Royal Navy, wouldn't you, as well? Uh, I suppose a couple. Mm. But the, I mean, what's interesting is this, it's the military thing, isn't it? Is that people, um, I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago who transferred from the uh, RAF to the Navy. And his greatest uh, his his greatest problem was the was the accommodation. It was much better in the Royal Air Force. Hmm. We all know why, but I mean, it, it makes a difference. You got a favourite uh, terminology from the Royal Navy days? Uh, Jack speak yeah. is enough. Jack speak <laughs> is enough. You know that you're in a closed society when you talk about a three badge AB. Hmm. If you can figure out what a three badge AB is, anything it took you a while to work out. The whole thing. <laughs> And didn't the Navy know that? <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you disagreed with anything you heard today, or maybe you even liked it, tell us on Twitter at BFBS Sitrep. And you can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss us. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week. Bye-bye.